Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Rundown, where we break down the most interesting retail headline news of the week. I'm senior reporter Gabby Barco, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Kale Guthrie-Weissman. Good morning, Kale. Good morning, Gabby. Of course, there's a lot of uh, earnings that happened this week, but we'll try to parse out what we thought was, you know, really some of the most interesting tidbits. But on this week's episode... Amazon aggregator Thrashio has filed for bankruptcy, so we will break that down. Then we'll look at Warby Parker's future plans for hundreds of more stores while also trying to grow their digital presence more. And the last thing we're going to talk about is Celsius Drinks, which is now a billion-dollar energy drink company that's been around for like 20 years, which I did not realize. Yeah. All right. Well, first up, let's go with Thrashio, which filed for bankruptcy this week. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, this is an Amazon aggregator whose whole model was to buy up brands that sell on Amazon. It was worth hundreds of millions of dollars, raised a lot of money too. And uh, it looks like they are in need of restructuring because of a lot of debt. And, you know, bankruptcies are pretty common nowadays, unfortunately. But Kale, why don't you give us a little bit of a history of Thrashio and how we got here? Sure. And first, it's not even hundreds of millions. This company was literally worth billions of dollars. It's one of it's just an insane fall. You know, there are always bubbles. It's always super interesting. And this move is not surprising. It's been talked about for months. So I'll just give a little bit of a background. you Set the table great. It was an Amazon aggregator, meaning it scooped up brands, would hope to flip them, bring them under its portfolio, and then use that to drive the business even more. Essentially, as many of these companies described it, a an updated version of like a PNG. You know, we have a portfolio of many brands, but Thrashio specifically was focused on the the Amazon space. Um, so the news that happened this week is it finally announced that it's filing for Chapter Eleven. This had been whispered about. For months, uh, in September, there were reports that it was bringing in restructuring firms. Now we know what it means. The company said it's hoping to slash uh, about $450 million in debts. It also said that it has received commitments from lenders uh, to the tune of about $90 million. This has been a years-long process. This is not like yesterday, things were great, today things are bad. Over the last two years, it's been pretty gnarly for Thrashio. And I will say for the the entire Amazon aggregator space as a whole, in 2022, I believe it it laid off about 20% of its workforce and its founder stepped down as CEO, which sent a, a pretty stark signal to the industry that things were going south. And then, as I said earlier, um, in 2020, late 2023, there, bega- there became rumors of um, a restructuring firm coming in to kind of try and right-size the ship. But yeah, that that's sort of where we are now. The company is filing for bankruptcy. It is, you know, painting it not as an end, but a new beginning, which is what probably 90% of bankruptcies say. But um, it's definitely an important chapter in this crazy industry that rose during the height of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that whiplash of companies that were just doing amazingly in 2020, 21, uh, and then just that steep drop-off is what we always talk about, which sometimes feels very surreal. But I mean, like, yeah, going from just the top aggregator to bankruptcy in the flat, in a flat, what, four years, pretty yeah. much, uh, is is 
pretty, yeah, pretty crazy. I mean, why don't we get into what led to this? Because obviously we know economically, you know, a lot of these e-commerce players aren't doing that well anymore. But uh, I think this is a combination of a lot of different things, not just that. Yeah. So what led to this was pretty much the the coming back down to earth post-pandemic. And so Thrasio was the leader in the Amazon aggregator space. It had a pitch that was similar to about a dozen other companies, which was they were going, you know, e-commerce was rising because people were stuck at home and buying their things online. And they were going to own and operate all of the individual atomized uh, brands that sell on Amazon, and they can streamline these these business operations. You know, uh, you know because because they can because they're so big, and through that they will make profit. And in the early days, that caught the eyes of uh, a bunch of investors. And so, uh, you know, Thrashio, along with others, I can think of like Forum Brands, Suma Brands. Um, they're like the list goes on, um, uh, raised. So Thrasio specifically raised $3.4 billion at least. We don't actually know. And it should be said, and this is probably what led to some of the problems. This wasn't pure VC equity. A lot of the money that Thrasio raised was debt. When debt's cheap, that's great, but the interest rates are rising. And so that leads to a bunch of problems. So that's definitely one issue that Thrasio raised. And all of these companies, pretty much their entire value proposition was based on they needed to have a lot of money so that they could buy up these brands and then flip them and then bring them into their own systems. And so you need a lot of money. And the idea is when you reach a certain economy of scale, it will work. But that was all predicated on the the e-commerce and the retail numbers that came out during the pandemic. And so, you know, a lot of these companies would, would when they were giving their pitches to journalists like me, or I assume talking to investors, would say, well, e-commerce is rising and it's going to continue to rise. You know, one stat that I found, which is pretty eye-popping when you think about it, but um, isn't the case anymore, is that Amazon's revenue um, in the first quarter of 2021 rose 44% year over year. And that's because everyone was buying stuff on Amazon then. And so these companies were riding those coattails. But then e-commerce penetration, it still e-commerce still went up, but was not going up as quickly as people had wanted. And then, you know, inflation took a hold, retail sales started to kind of get kind of wonky. Pretty much there was a mixture of a lot of these companies had raised debt, um, which meant that they were going to have to pay that back. People weren't buying online the same way that they were before, and and also people weren't people weren't buying as much. There, the economy was a little bit more wonky, and so when you're not able to sort of have that you know hockey stick growth, that that's when things go bad. And so we're seeing a lot of contraction happening here because essentially these companies were raising with the promise of a bubble, and it seemed like a bubble, and it was a bubble. Yeah, and uh, at its peak, Thrasio was valued at $10 billion. Apologies, I said hundreds of millions. <laughs> very silly five minutes ago. But also for those unfamiliar, uh, Kel, do you want to give us an idea of what types of brands this aggregator or roll-up, you know, whatever we're calling them, uh, was buying up? Because it kind of ran the gamut. I mean, of course, it's like things you'd buy on Amazon, but I just thought their portfolio was also really interesting. Yeah. And that's also, and this was one thing that Thrasio 
did at the time was its portfolio was really all over the place. So it was pet goods, it was home goods, it was toys. It really was, you know, a variety of different things. And the pitch that the company said was it had an internal algorithm or way of analyzing the, you know, pretty much an Amazon brand would submit their financials to the company. It would analyze it and be like, we think we can turn this around and make a profit. So it went, you know, there were a bunch of different verticals and, you know, the the focus was just on if they think it would be able to reach a certain level of profitability that would work for its system, then they would go for it. Mind you, there are other aggregators at the, out there who focused more on specific segments. And so, you know, there, there are certain aggregators who focused more on home goods, others that focused more on health and beauty or CPG. But Thrashio really was more or less, it didn't do everything, but it definitely had a bunch of different verticals and was trying to do sort of a, a very wide target of like, if you know, if you're on the Amazon platform, we will be able to flip you. Yeah. And because, you know, there, there are so many categories that it's covering. I mean, there's fitness gear, there's pet, yeah. pet stuff stuff. But I think one thing that's unique, obviously, to to trying to grow Amazon brands is that it is so relying on uh, reviews and rankings and constantly climbing up those charts. And that's really hard to do when you have over 200 brands. I think that's what their site says is at the moment. Yeah. And I think the idea was that Thrashio would be able to consolidate all of those expertise. So, you know, you don't need to have each brand have its own person focusing on Amazon SEO, for example, or you don't need someone who is working on the Amazon DSP for advertising. The hope was they would have these Amazon experts. And it should be said, one thing that Thrashio really did in the early days was poach a lot of ex-Amazon people. Like it had a lot of Amazon people in there so that a brand could essentially be bought, be brought into its system, and then they would use the resources already there to, to grow the sales on paper, that looks like a good pitch, but clearly it was not able to reach the level of profits it needed to. And uh, another interesting thing is that if you talk to other aggregators who are still around that have yet to file for bankruptcy, when you ask them what their pitch is now, it's very, very different from what they said before. Pretty much the pitch now, if you are still in the business, is we're focused on omni-channel growth. We want to get you into big box retail. We want to get you into other marketplaces. And we are being much more specific and diligent about who we bring into our portfolio. So it's kind of the opposite, where it's not just a pure Amazon e-commerce play. And if your um, if your balance sheet looks a certain way, you will fit. It's instead like, we're going to be really, really slow and judicious with whether you can be part of our group. And then what we can do is make you look like every other brand out there that wants to get a foothold in the retail scene. So it's it's a very different business offering than it was when when the industry was first starting. Yeah, I was just thinking all these all those Amazon people. It's a really expensive payroll. Uh, yeah, explains the layoffs. Uh, so uh, I think to zoom out, uh, speaking of just the general aggregator space, uh, this is not the first bankruptcy we've seen uh, in the last few months. Uh, there's uh, another company called Ventagio. Think is how you say it. Uh, yeah, I think filed so. for bankruptcy last year. Yeah, and so yeah, it just seems like a part of a bigger trend. Yeah, and we're also seeing a bunch of cons consolidation. And so this is not new. This began last year and even the year before that. But the the company Seller X, which was another aggregator, um, it acquired Elevated Brands, Suma Brands, another aggregator um, merged with the D1 Group. 
pretty much what all of these companies are trying to do is figure out a way where they can have enough resources and also enough like money, like enough cash in, in the bank to continue doing this. Because right now, the big issue is that most of these businesses raise debt. And when you raise debt, that means you're going to have to pay it back. And if you aren't profitable, then you're kind of screwed. And so that's the place where a lot of these companies are now. I've also spoken with other aggregators, and they've pretty much said, you know, we're doing relatively okay, but we know that a lot of other ones are in distress. And so they're viewing this as a time to pretty much buy up cheap assets when they can. You know, with this chapter 11, do we have an idea of where the company is going is going. I mean, of course, trying to eliminate debt, it's a, it's a lot of debt to try to, you know, restructure in a short amount of time. But I think we could probably expect more layoffs, more, you know, just cost cuts in general. Probably more cost cuts. I, you know, the app blind already has people being like, oh, God, more layoffs at Thrashio. But, you know, for its part, the company says that it will can try to continue doing business as usual. Um, this is from its press release. The infusion of new capital is expected to provide sufficient liquidity to support the company throughout this process and beyond. In particular, the financing will enable the continued operation of Thrashio's brands, support ongoing business operations, and provide the company with ex- access to new capital upon the emergence from Chapter 11 to support go-forward business operations. So, Essentially, the company is saying that if this is a successful restructuring, we'll be able to continue. We don't know if the business model is going to change drastically, but that's that's where we are right now. It's probably going to look different. I wonder if they'll uh, offload brands. I don't know. I'm just I'm just thinking out loud, but uh, it'll be interesting to see or imagine what that's going to look like in a year or so. Yeah, and if you know anything, reach out to me, please. Hit up Kale. From there, we can move on. This leads us to Warby Parker. Uh, Warby Parker is betting on hundreds of new stores uh, opening to grow in the future. Of course, this is not going to happen overnight. But to give you an idea, eventually, the company wants to have about 900 stores. And for context, it is right now at 237 I think what makes this interesting is that there's just, you know, a further and further push into physical retail for this company that, of course, as we know, started out as an e-com virtual try-on glasses D2C store. I'm just I'm just throwing out all the buzzwords. Yeah, in, all in, the buzzwords. It was e-com, DNVB, DTC. <laughs> yeah, I should have I should have found an order to put them in, but <laughs> you get you get the gist. But yeah, I mean, you know, almost basically 10 years ago, and now it looks more and more like a a, a vision center that you walk into uh, that I think, you know, a lot of Americans now live near. But uh, this week, the company reported earnings, and I thought what was interesting is that e-commerce is indeed shrinking uh, while they invest really heavily in new stores. Uh, did anything stand out to you as far as, uh, you know, trying to compete with with these physical vision places. I mean, what's interesting to me is that, you know, the company said it wants to open 900 new stores that will still make it less than, say, a lens crafter, which has a thousand locations nationwide, but that still is putting it closer and closer to on par with that. So it's always very funny because when a company launches and it wants to, it wants to reinvent the industry, but then as companies get into their adolescence and then into their mature older years, 
often they begin looking like the business models of the the incumbents that they were trying to do to overcome. And so, you know, 900 Warby Parker stores, soon to be over a thousand, if that works out, and that puts it on par with a, a model similar to what LensCrafter was, or at least the everyday consumer would think that. Maybe you know, it's different. Maybe in the back end, so it's just an interesting thing where it's like it started out online, and now stores are the big area of growth. I find that super interesting. Yeah, and you know, to be clear, I mean, the company has been pretty clear about wanting to to do this. I mean, for a few years now, they've always known that. Uh, glasses are more naturally purchased in store. Whenever I've spoken to them, this was always the trajectory. Um, but I do think it's coming at an interesting time right now where the stores are actually helping drive bigger AOV. We'll get into why that is. I think we all know what happens when you're yeah. adding things on in person yeah. versus a website. Services. Services, yes, exactly. Well, you know, I, I think the eye exam business is obviously growing. Yeah. And then they also have a lot of add-ons that you could add. Because, you know, the the the, pro, the value prop of Warby Parker is that you could walk in and out with, was it, I think it started with, at a $95 yeah. frame and lenses that I can assure you that is not the case anymore. It's a little bit more. But there's also, you know, there's like blue light filters and all of, you know, coatings and all of these add-ons that do sell pretty well. And they're saying that, um, I think one stat that stood out to me is that the average revenue per customer increased 9.3% 9, 9 in 2023, and it's now at $287. So when you think about it, that's obviously not one pair of DTC glasses. Uh, yeah. they're, they're likely buying even two pairs. I know they encourage that pretty heavily. So, I mean, I think this growth is also interesting because they're also, of course, they're also really focused on expanding products, getting as many styles as possible in the stores. They're doing a lot of fun collabs, uh, including with celebs and influencers. I think they just had one with Emma Chamberlain. So there's a lot going on. But again, a lot of this does drive the traffic to the stores, uh, which you know, we'll transition into this, also help save a lot of money operationally. Yeah. You don't have to keep constantly shipping glasses back and forth and try-ons and all of that, you can kind of just shorten that process for the customer too. But why don't we look at the performance of e-commerce this week? And I think this is an interesting contrast. Yeah. So and you, you pointed this out earlier, but I think it's something that definitely stands out. And this doesn't mean the overall performance is bad. Like I think in the overall DTC space, Warby Parker is doing pretty well and has like proven to be able to roll with the punches about how consumption patterns change. But um, its fourth quarter e-commerce revenue dropped 1% year over year. In contrast, its retail revenue grew 17.1%. For the full year, e-commerce revenue dropped 3.1% and retail revenue grew by 21.7%. And so pretty much, you know, these are really interesting numbers when you think about what companies have been saying for the last year, which they want to open stores, they want to focus on omni-channel, they want to do all this. Warby Parker has been doing this for the last few years, and it is clearly, it, you know, it's clearly working. Like, the company is opening more stores, more people are going to its stores. That is at the cost of e-com, but the, this other channel is probably offsetting it. Right. Of course, we know that Stores cost a lot of money to open. Uh, they are uh, shrinking their losses every quarter, but they are still posting losses on their quarterly earnings. With the e-commerce shrink, I th this is, I think, really interesting, of course, is that like a lot of brands, 
they pulled back on marketing spend last year. That's part of the reason why e-commerce shrank. It seems pretty obvious, uh, but I think that's something we're seeing with a lot of brands. It's not unique. You know, it should be said that the overall earnings for Warby Parker, like pretty much the reception from Wall Street was that they were not as great as they wanted them to be. So like it's overall revenue hit 161.9 million versus unexpected 161 million. And just, you know, as you said, it still posted a loss. But at the same time, I don't know, it like, it's clear that there is an overall somewhat strategy in place. And so I don't know what I'm saying. But it's just interesting to contextualize this with the overall business as a whole. Yeah. And they did mention uh, on the call that they will continue to try to grow the digital experience, but it is, it's being tweaked, right? It's not what it looks like 10 years ago. Uh, right now, the virtual try-on service, uh, they say still converting customers pretty well, uh, but funny enough, customers are actually, you know, starting to prefer the stores more and more because you want your glasses, uh, ideally, you know, within a few days versus shipping them back and forth and trying different styles on. Uh, but yeah, the co-CEO, Dave Gilboa, did say that going forward, you'll see us invest further in virtual experience and advance ver- personalization while being more intentional in where and how we lead with the home try-on program. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think this all kind of ties back to hundreds of more stores opening probably in the next decade. Yeah, it- it'll be interesting to see how this develops. All right. Well, from there, let's move on to energy drinks. Uh, Celsius Drinks also reported its earnings this week, and this was a record quarter for them. So let's get into that. I think a lot of people probably know what Celsius is. It's the healthy version of a lot of the energy drinks that are yeah. on the market. And their biggest thing is you know, sugar-free, and they're really more aligned with the health and fitness community or consumers. Yeah. So yeah, what stood out to you with this with this report? Because these numbers are kind of crazy. Yeah, well, let's just let's just look at the numbers right now to to set the table, as they say. So posted record revenue of three hundred forty seven million, which was a ninety five percent increase year over year, and it had thirty nine million dollars in net income. Um, um, that was for the the fourth quarter for the year as a whole. It hit one point three two billion up. 102% from $654 million from the year prior. It's currently the number three drink in the U.S. with 10.5% of market share. So those are some pretty staggering numbers. And this is, I mean, like, truth, I know, I've, I know Celsius. I learned about Celsius not that long ago um, because of a podcast, actually. But, like, its rise and, like, it's been around since 2006. It's been, or it's been public since it's been 2006. Public, yeah. It's been public since 2006. This is not a new company, but it has clearly just been waiting in the wings for this weird moment we're in now with beverages, where it's a mix of higher end assortments at stores and a focus on better for you and a mixture, this weird melange we're in right now, which is both weight loss, but make it sound healthy. Um, and so it's sort of like it checks all the boxes for that where it's like it's not you know one could say it's it's part of a, a growing a growing group of weight loss fads but it also presents itself as a healthy alternative so not just pure whatever aspartame or whatever's in it i don't know it it, it just is clearly the beverage that is working with where the cultural pulse is right now and the numbers are showing that 
Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit uh, with, you know, the types of influencers, athletes, celebs that they work with. But uh, right now it's behind Red Bull and Monster to give you yeah. uh, an idea of, of where it is in the market. I think uh, the the CEO, John Fieldley, actually broke it down this week in an interview with Yahoo, where he essentially credited this the, the health aspect, of course, and the fact that it is a premium brand as their uh, their big ticket to success. Of course, the consumers obviously are just Americans in general shifting to sugar-free. That has helped a lot, but he also did say that the company itself has been really building on that momentum by working, you know, expanding into food service. We did a story on their partnership with Jersey Mike's last year, and uh, they expanded into over 3,000 Dunkin' Donuts locations, which I think is really interesting, uh, a, a canned beverage brand that has such a big presence there. But with that said, uh, he did mention this quote, I thought it was interesting, is that the category is about to flip to where 50% of energy drinks are going to be sugar-free for the first for the first time in history, which I think is really interesting because sugar-free Red Bull has been around for decades. So there, there's just a lot of things, like a lot of factors that are culminating in this for their success. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the retail partnerships make a lot of sense, but I also know that, you know, it's really trying to tie itself with health and fitness. Um, it works with athletes, wellness influencers. They have a multi-year deer with Ferrari with F1, uh, Major League Soccer, things like that. And it's kind of an interesting, I don't know, I'm, I'm dating myself right now. And maybe you remember this, but like Red Bull would have the little Red Bull cars that would go to high schools. My high school got the Red Bull person who is sending it. But now Celsius is yeah, I, I, you know, I could see a, a world where Celsius drives its whatever Celsius golf cart to a yoga class or, or, or like something mm -hmm. like that, where it's like it's figured out who the target demographic is and it's trying to build on that. And it seems like an interesting evolution of where the energy drink industry was 15 years ago. Yeah, no, I definitely remember the Red Bull cars. Uh, they were kind of controversial, I guess, looking back now. Yeah. When you think about it, that would not fly today. No, you can't hand uh the, yeah, these high caffeinated drinks to high schoolers. But I think this all just points to Celsius. Uh, I, I do wonder, of course, they had such a crazy record year, but they do eventually want to, you know, top Red Bull and Monster, I'm sure. So it's not going to happen overnight. But I think right now they have the momentum. It's just going to come down to being able to build on that and doubling down on the healthier formulations, because that seems to be where... Uh, yeah, their success is lying. Yeah, yeah, super fascinating company. And I've, I mean, it's been around for a long time and I've seen it, but it's definitely getting its its acclaim and prominence now. So we'll see how the next year goes, if it can still do 100% year-over-year growth. Yeah, yeah, we definitely thought it was a startup, I think, a few years ago. We thought maybe yeah. it was around for a couple of years. All right, with that, we can wrap up. That's all from us this week. You can come back on Saturdays to hear more weekly rundowns of the biggest retail news. You can rate and review us anywhere you get your podcasts. And on Thursdays, uh, listen to interviews with Kill. Uh, he interviews industry leaders, a lot of brand executives. Uh, Kill, who do you have on next week? Uh, uh, next week, I'm speaking with Nancy Taylor, who is the co-founder of APOC Evolution, um, a higher-end apparel brand that was recently acquired by Lola, uh, which is a Quebec-based athleisure brand. And we just talked about 
apparel, all things with that, what's going on in the space, and also just the drive for more brands to, to be sustainable and responsible. It was a really fun conversation. We hope you come back next week. Thank you for listening.